let's just get this started. Um, wanted to kind of have more discussions about inflation, the supply chain, that's uh, issues that are going on in the ports of California. Uh, kind of what does the Bitcoin ETF mean? Uh, from what I understand, it's a futures ETF. And there's kind of a mixed reaction on what that can mean for crypto. In the short term, it's bullish and seems to have uh, pushed the price up more. But it's, it's backtracked a little bit more. And I think that's because it's a, it's a futures ETF and not a full ETF. Um, I would not, that's not a product that I would use. So it's, it's not really something I think for a lot of uh, younger people who want direct exposure to Bitcoin. I think it's something good, I guess, for people who want exposure to the space. Maybe they're more traditional investors or institutional that cannot be engaging in crypto in the way that probably a lot of the people listening to this are. It seems like it's similar to the Grayscale product, uh, Grayscale Bitcoin Trust, in that it allow. It seems like a good product for people that crypto uh, or crypto people wouldn't be a big fan of, like funds, because what they can do is buy these futures, and then they can actually buy Bitcoin and arbitrage uh, the difference. So essentially it's a Wall Street product. And I just don't see it really being useful for people who are already in space, but that's not even who it's for. I think it will have the effect of driving up the price just because they have to purchase underlying shares of big or coins of Bitcoin uh, for this product. But it doesn't really say as much, you know, all the coin telegraph and all these uh bitcoin publications you know they're going to get all excited about it because they feel like it's another form of validation i think the big good news is that the us is not seeming to be super aggressive against crypto i mean they said they're not going to get rid of it they are going to go after what they see as securities um we understand that but the reason that I see that this was approved is because they view it as a product that protects investors because they don't view it as a risky because it resembles a traditional asset more so or something that Wall Street's more used to dealing with. And it just shows kind of that the, it actually shows the inflexibility of the traditional system in the SEC. Uh, to not want to venture much outside of what they're comfortable with and they want to maintain their monopoly of the way they're used to doing things. And I don't see it as a huge progressive product. If they actually allowed like a little Bitcoin ETF, um, I think that would that would show a big change. So I think that's still the big thing to look for. Well, this is definitely is not a bad thing. It's I mean, it's good for the price of Bitcoin. Um, but if you're in Bitcoin long term, you know, something like this shouldn't be that big of an event. So what I'm saying on this podcast is just that it's cool. I mean, just like, you know, El Salvador taking Bitcoin, it's just another thing that I think legitimizes it more. But I don't think it's that big of a deal. 
fact that they're willing to approve anything at all, I guess, is a good deal. But it doesn't really show a big mentality shift. And it shows that they're still trying to kind of wrestle Bitcoin into this lane that they want them to be in. And they're like, okay, Bitcoin's okay if it kind of fits within our realm of thinking of things. So I guess my takeaway is just that it's it's not that that big of a deal. But I think it's bullish and Bitcoin, I think it's just going to go up from here. I really do. I, I've said uh, on various different platforms what my prediction for Bitcoin is just based off very rough and understanding of how uh, logarithms work. You know, it looks it looks like uh, between bull cycles, it, you kind of have like this, this 10x effect and Bitcoin went from about $1,700 was the high before the next bull cycle. It went up to like 17000 or so. These are rough estimations. So, you know, I just kind of looked at each cycle and just roughly kind of threw together what I, I just wanted to be able to say, hey, I said this and be able to go look back and look and see how close I was. Um, by no means am I a, a chart analyst or anything like that. But I estimate between about, you know, if we estimate about 10x, uh, say 170,000 to 250,000 would be my guess as to where we go in terms of where Bitcoin tops out at. So we're still a long way from that. So I just, I think we, we're going to have this continuing series of going up and then a blow off as people lose faith in a bull run. But I think because we didn't break through any like crazy fundamentals on the downside that I really don't think we've hit, we hit a bear market as far as uh, crypto goes when we had that big sell off. And I think it was just this, you know, I'm not saying anything new. I know for anybody that follows Bitcoin, but it was just a culmination of a lot of stuff of FUD and things like that. And I think this will go into the beginning of next year from everything I've put together. I just view myself as an aggregator. I listen to so much different content across uh, podcasts. And I like to listen to the extreme crypto people, you know, that think it'll go to 2 million this cycle. And then I like to listen to the very conservative people. and you know, I kind of make my judgment somewhere in the middle and kind of generate my own opinion about it. I think 170,000 to 200,000 would be perfectly reasonable before we get a huge pullback. And obviously, you know, you're going to do a lot better if you go further out on that risk curve because Bitcoin's going to drag up all of the assets around it. I think Ethereum will actually be one of the best performers of the bull run. I mean, I heard Ralph Powell say, he thought it could go up to uh, 20, 25,000. That would be crazy. Um, I definitely have Ethereum as my biggest position. And then Bitcoin, just because it's so, it's so solid. I, I really want to, you know, have some stability. Like I've heard people saying, you know, go all in and just, you know, put all your money in something like Solana or Ethereum. Uh, but I like to be diversified and I, I won't, 
you know, a lot of these crypto people have completely given up on the stock market. They've pulled all their money off stocks and they're all in crypto. I just refuse to do that. Um, I, first of all, I like investing in companies. It's something I can easily understand. They produce assets. You know, like I do kind of have that Warren Buffett talk in the back of my head, like even though I invest heavily in tech and growth stocks, which is, um, you know, he would hate. And I don't think Warren Buffett understands, you know, everything that's going on right now. But I do like the idea of owning something that I interact with on a daily basis. And just to be real, I don't interact with all these DeFi protocols and Ethereum besides checking my Coinbase, you know, on a daily basis. So there's something that makes me feel uneasy about putting all my money into those sort of things. Um, do I, that doesn't mean I don't have faith in it and that I don't uh, realize its value, but you know, I'm not going to pull out 90% of my net worth and put it in one of those things. I think that makes sense. And, you know, I want to have some money in, in some real world things like Tesla or Shopify that I am interacting with on a daily basis, right? I see them going around. I'm like, that's a good car. You know, they make a good vehicle. Uh, or like there's there's just so many things out there. And I, I think it's good to be in, you know, the traditional world and then this this brave new world that we're entering with crypto. So, you know, I diversify between growth stocks and especially, you know, when you say growth, I guess that can be all sectors, uh, tech and crypto. And within crypto, I'm diversified. You know, I have kind of my blue chip and then my more growth out on the risk curve. And, you know, I definitely have been building up positions in some of the other layer ones because I think a lot of activity in some of these smaller tokens consolidates onto the layer ones. And I really like how Ralph Powell from Real Vision looks at this. And he says, these are all kind of going by a similar formula as far as the blockchains go is just network effects and he looks at the network effects of bitcoin and he thinks ethereum is on the same track just like a cycle behind so you know ethereum will eventually like bitcoin's on its own network effects growth and then ethereum is right behind that and if you've seen this crazy growth of bitcoin you have to believe that ethereum can follow that as long as it's keeping that network. And I actually think Ethereum could have more growth because Bitcoin really has a network effect on the side of the, the buyers, you know, us holding Bitcoin. Whereas not really, from my understanding, as much on the developer side. But Ethereum, because it's like a smart contract platform, you know, you've got more like that network effect like an Amazon to where they have the buyer and the seller, or the sellers being like all the dApps built on top of Ethereum, uh, you've got the network effect on both sides. You know, the, these developers are creating way more utility and use case for Ethereum, and then they're using Ethereum as the the monetary system, gas, pay gas fees, and all that kind of thing. And then you've got the the buyers on the other side, and then you've got these deflationary properties, which are, you know, deflationary in uh, Bitcoin's got a deflationary 
quality in the sense of you have the halvings, which still sets kind of the cadence for the whole crypto market. Um, and, you know, the, the hash rate and all that kind of thing that makes it scarcer. But then you've got that with Ethereum in, the, in terms of uh, the proof of stake and it being burned uh, in payouts to the, the node operators. Uh, Solana interests me a lot. The, it seems like a blockchain built with a purpose. And I, I keep talking about it. I've been really impressed with the interviews. I encourage you when you're researching these crypto projects to look up, use like Spotify or something, look up interviews with these, because like reading white papers and stuff, that's great if you do that. But a lot of people, I mean, you could say anything in these things and, you know, it's not being corroborated by anybody really. I guess one thing you could do is see the activity that's going on on GitHub and see how many developers are working on these these projects. But really, I recommend listening to interviews of these the, the people developing these projects. I mean, if if they're a good project, they they willingly welcome criticism and people interviewing them. They're trying to get publicity publicity about their project. And listen to a podcast maybe that has a really good interviewer who's going to ask the right questions. Um, Jason from All In, he he does he interviews the guy from Solana, and you know he, Jason's a good interviewer. Uh, he has a podcast called uh, This Week in Startups, and you know he asks really good questions. He was able to trip up uh, the guy that's ran Nikola, Trevor Milton, and. He inter- I think he interviewed some of the people. No, he want. I think he interviewed some of the people from Tether, or he maybe wanted to. I know CNBC interviewed the people from Tether. Um, does a really good job extracting information. Uh, is it Vitol Yatoli or something like that? Yakovinko. That's the guy that runs Solana, and he's well spoken. And you know, I mean, I guess if you're really good scam artist, you can talk your way through something, but. I think you should always listen to somebody founder of a project and listen to how they describe the project. And uh, that can tell you a lot. And then there's Cardano and Polkadot. Uh, seems like Cardano is still trying to become used as blockchain. I think, I don't think it's used yet. They're still working on like uh, putting some pieces in place. Polkadot seems to have a decent ecosystem. Uh, Tezos, I think, is another one to look at. So I, I, I'm more focused on these these layer ones. And if if there's anybody that has a lot more experience with these layer ones, for so long I've just focused on Bitcoin and Ethereum, and some of the the tokens associated with like Ethereum. I just recently really started pushing more into. Uh, into Solana and some of these others. And, you know, I still, I still am trying to figure out what to look for exactly. But I, to me, it just has to come, it has to really come down to network effects and are these useful. Uh, Solana spooked me a little bit when they had that, that crash for about 16 hours. But, you know, I listened to the guy talk about it and it seems like, you know, this is something that's going to happen. I think Ethereum's had its own issues in the past. Ethereum's very much something. And you see how big Ethereum's gotten. And they've had their own struggles with infrastructure. And they're trying to switch over from proof of work to proof of stake. They're trying to do sharding and 
all these different things build up uh uh get layer twos to build up side chains and uh zk rollups and all these things so that you can get a higher right now i think there's about 15 transact transactions per second on ethereum which is just not enough uh for what the we need in the future and all these new things are being implemented hopefully can make it be able to process a lot more volume and you know that's where i want to have a hedge with something like solana even though there's a criticism of it being less less uh decentralized you know he questions you know how decentralized does it need to be can we make it just enough decentralized and then you know i optimize for throughput and in the end i think a lot of these blockchains there will be blockchains for different things for different use cases i i don't think it'll be monolithic I don't think there will only be one. So, you know, Solana seems like it was custom built for very high, high volume uh, DeFi transactions and trading, and it could be great at that. It, and they, they're on track to be able to process more than Visa. And then you've got like the Flow blockchain, which is optimized for NFTs. So I don't think gaming to gaming should be run through Ethereum if they can't solve a lot of the the issues with gas fees and volume because gaming doesn't gaming doesn't need a high level of security and maybe it doesn't need that much decentralization it just needs like to be fast and effective i mean it depends maybe how valuable those gaming tokens are i mean if you have like a five dollar item versus a million dollar rare Fortnite skin you know you may want it running on different chains so inflation, supply chain, uh, there's, I mean, there's no question that there's inflation going on right now. It's just how bad is it going to get? I think there's certain things that are not reversible as far as wages going up, which, you know, it's been a long time coming. I think, you know, that's going to, uh, that's a necessary thing that needs to happen is people need to be paid more for working. Um, we've had such a long period of deflation in terms of technology driving costs down, but people's wages not going up. But I do think this will actually speed up the investments by companies into automation. You know, I think some companies that can't afford to push into automation, you know, they're, they're gonna get eaten up by expenses paying their employees more. But the companies that can't afford it, those are the companies that are gonna do better because they can, you know, I don't know if, say chipotle can sit there and automate everything and make it burritos or having uh nobody checking you out and you know like uh they they can invest in the things they need to drive the prices down and uh and not really take a big hit whereas maybe your local restaurants they can't invest in any of that so it's not just restaurants factories all kinds of stuff supply chain i think you know, if you're in the stock market, I would say invest in companies that have a very vertically integrated supply chain. I think Apple and Tesla are a good example of this. Even though Apple does, they say they're very vertically integrated, but they do have a lot of stuff in China, which I think is a huge problem. I worry about Tesla having those factories in China and anything with big exposure to china scare worries me but their example of you see the traditional automakers they're net net they're very down on deliveries this year and 
uh, sales and Tesla's actually up. And, you, you know, it's like, what could Tesla have done had they not had those issues? And I was reading that uh, Elon Musk went on a phone call with Volkswagen and the CEO was actually using him to help like motivate them and become less bureaucratic and be able to produce electric cars faster. And Elon kind of has that open source, want to help people, you know, achieve the mission kind of mentality. I'm sure that's why he did it. And, you know, he kind of told them uh, why, like what really made uh, his methods effective. And I can read that real quick, which is really interesting. So he he said, uh, Elon Musk said, as far as to why uh, Tesla is more nimble than its rivals, he said it came down to his management style and that he's an engineer, first of all, and he has an eye for supply chains, logistics, and production. And uh, the CEO of Volkswagen said that he had, in a LinkedIn post, say brought Musk as a surprise guest to drive home the point that VW needs faster decisions and less bureaucracy for what he called the biggest transformation in VW's history. And that's, that's bullish for VW. Um, and he said, he's happy to hear that our strongest competitor, Tesla thinks that we will succeed. He's calling Tesla their big strongest competitor. So they're acknowledging that Tesla is super competitive, which is bullish for Tesla, um, that we will succeed in the transition. If we drive the transformation with full power, uh, as an example of Tesla's prowess, he said it took the rival being Tesla, only two to three weeks to rewrite software to allow for a switch from one type of microchip, which went out of stock to another. Now that is, that that's what you want as a company that you're invested with, is the ability to run into a supply chain crunch and be able to work around that as fast as possible. And, you know, Tesla's type car the way it's very software driven gives it the ability to pivot really fast than these very um, than these companies that rely very much on analog or they have to uh, outsource everything. So, I mean, I think that's really cool for Tesla. And I think more companies, you'll see them heavily investing in robotics, automation, and vertically integrating and bringing the supply chain back. I think the big two trends you will see actually in this decade will be a reversal. So we've actually had, you know, our country has transitioned from being manufacturing to a very service-based economy. And whether you like this or not, I actually, and then there's been a lot of upheaval because we've sent a lot of the manufacturing jobs abroad and that's hollowed out a lot of the areas that are having like methanol or methanol, um, fentanyl issues and all kinds of stuff and has created kind of this populist uh, movement in the United States. Um, I think that's the big untold story. And actually, I think you're going to see a reversal with all the supply chain stuff. I think you're going to actually see a lot of manufacturing come back here. But it's not necessarily going to create a lot of new jobs. It, may, it definitely will create some new jobs. But I think you'll see a lot of 3D printing, uh, more automation. And we have the ability now to do a lot of the manufacturing more uh, automated, in a more automated fashion. 
I actually think you'll see an increasing uh, deployment of service sent abroad. So I actually think a lot of more of our service industry jobs are at threat to go abroad as you have, um, you know, other country up and coming countries becoming more and more educated. And it's a lot cheaper, you know, to have people in, you know, a lot of these call centers or uh, IT jobs and stuff working like the Philippines or India or something like that. Um, and being able to handle a lot of your projects, you know, I've used services off Fiverr and a lot, you know, a lot of those people, you know, in those countries, they're achieving much better quality of life because suddenly they can, they can work independently and, you know, uh, either work for an IT kind of company and uh, just communications like Zoom and all these things have just really made it possible. And I really think a lot of the world has a better education system than we do too. So these jobs or these companies here won't have a choice unless we let in more immigrants. Um, they're gonna look abroad to be able to fulfill all that talent because we're just not doing a good enough job teaching the coding and the machine learning and all the stuff that is really needed here. So it's, I think this decade you will see a weird flip of onshoring of production and offshoring more and more of service jobs as there's more qualified people around the world to take those jobs unless we really invest heavily into education more so which i hope we do um so that's my i i think uh stocks in the supply chain i've noticed there's a lot of up-and-coming unicorns and uh uber bought a company called uh trans place they they have a company within uber called uber freight and i think that is actually the mo most interesting portion of uber is their potential to, or potential as a 3pl a th third party logistics company um and making like uber to me it doesn't make much sense a lot of what they do uh, but they are amazing logistics provider. But I mean, they like have all that software. They know how to get from A to B. I don't think it makes sense financially to do all these small items like food delivery and stuff. But when you're talking freight, I'm like, they need to put all their technology into reworking our logistics networks. And so I would like to see, I would, that's the thing that would make me want to buy Uber stock is if they push more and more into that sort of thing. And there's other, there's a SPAC that came public that is in the third party logistics space. There is some very interesting companies in 3D printing. And then also in, there's a company, it's a third party, it's a marketplace for, um, essentially connecting you with custom parts what is that company called uh zometry yes zometry uh seems like a very interesting company to me uh, and then there's one called it was a spac that came public and essentially they're building micro manufacturing facilities that have like 3d printing cnc machines they're not manufacturing 3d printing machines but they get all the equipment they, and you can rapid manufacture in these like micro factories, which to me, all this stuff is super interesting. And I think this is where a lot of stuff's going. 
Zometry, I'm looking at their description. It says Zometry is engaged in providing AI-enabled manufacturing equipment. It, its buyers include engineers, product designers, procurement and supply chain personnel, inventors, and business owners. The manufacturing processes offered by the company include CNC machining, injection molding, urethane casting, 3D printing, and die casting. So yeah, 3D printing now is not what you thought of as I th people thought it died out. And when I talk to people about 3D printing, they just are like, oh, that didn't work out. That was just like those 3D printers that sit next to your computer and they print plastic and those are sweet. You can prototype little things, but they can 3D print almost anything now. Foam, wood, plastic, uh, metals, aircraft components. It's amazing. And I think someday, you know, locally you will be able to print any part you need. And, you know, I don't know if it'll just be a little community like factory or whether it'll almost be in your house um or your local bit your business will just be able to whip up whatever component it needs i guess it just depends on the scale but and they can they have 3d printers that can actually rapidly print things as well um it's just so much more efficient and there's a little ways to go but it's it's a cool technology um it's it's just really amazing where where some of the stuff has gone um so, I mean, it's it's definitely going to be a different world. The, the technologies are getting there. There's also a, a company, uh, I'm trying to remember the name of that one too, is it what it does is, so Amazon, one of the amazing things it has within its fulfillment centers is all the robotics that are able to uh, efficiently work with humans within the fulfillment centers to get things done. There is a company, uh, it's Gray something, that essentially provides other companies besides Amazon, it, the, the robotics and uh, the technology to be able to do what Amazon does in their fulfillment centers. So, I mean, I, I definitely think investing in like REITs within the fulfillment, uh, fulfillment space and then the technologies, um, Berkshire Gray is the company. Uh, they went public as a SPAC, have a lot of big investments from our boy Chamath on All In. Berkshire Gray, uh, Chamath also invested in uh, Desktop Metal, which was a 3D printing company. Uh, Berkshire Gray is an intelligent enterprise robotics company. It engages in pioneering and delivering transformative AI-enabled robotic solutions, which automate fulfilling e-commerce orders for consumers or businesses, filling orders to resupply retail stores and groceries and handling packages. The firm transforms supply chain operation solutions. So definitely lots of stuff. Um, you see why I don't wanna just invest in crypto because there's so much cool stuff going on and you know, the SPAC industry has been kind of written off right now. There's a lot of good stuff within a lot of garbage. So I would definitely be looking out, looking through all these SPACs that have been coming out. There's some, there's some gold, I think, in there. And to cover everything else, yeah, uh, I said crypto run projections, inflation supply chain. Um, yeah, I, I challenge you guys to uh, just dig into some crypto, uh, dig into 
some of the cool stocks out there. I, I'm not changing my plan. You know, I'm, I kind of doing a hybrid. I'm still investing like I normally would, but I am starting to hedge a little bit. I think Bitcoin is a hedge. I might invest more in some metals companies, uh, whether it's copper, actually uranium, and uh, gold and silver mining. I like the miners because they pay dividend and uh, they're more volatile. So I think that makes it a better hedge if things really go south and prices really spike. You know, everybody says don't invest in tech growth when inflation is happening, if it really does keep going. I do not see companies stopping the spend on automation and on software that makes them more productive. You know, there's lots of stuff in the tech space that is, yes, it's going to get slashed. You know, people may not be spending a ton of money on Pelotons and all these things, but communications equipment like Zoom, you know, you, I mean, obviously you got to look at their PE ratios and whether they were like way too far out anyway, because it's, you know, everything's going to slow a bit. But Twilio, there's just so many things that companies need. They're going to maintain Salesforce. That's a company, you know, they're not going to cut Salesforce from their company. They're not going to cut Microsoft Teams. So Michael Burry is actually investing in, he's shorting Tesla, but he's, in, he's uh, putting a lot of money into Facebook and Google, you know, advertising, you know, those companies provide, first of all, they have lots of cash flow. They are profitable. So, you know, maybe moving more into tech companies that are super profitable, that have a lot of cash flow, less speculative stuff right now until we really see how this inflation is going to pan out. But I wouldn't abandon tech. I would double down in areas that aren't going to go anywhere. You know, Salesforce is, is a good one, I think. The Twilio. Um, so stuff that is, is absolutely necessary and that is and really focus on stuff that's going to save companies money as workers get more and more expensive. Um, because as workers get more and more expensive and, and companies can't afford maybe to hire as many, any automation and software that makes it cheap, uh, the business cheaper is going to do very well, I believe. Um, now it may not maintain its same PE ratios or its uh, same uh, heightened price valuation, but you know I think those are, are safe places to be within all this. And then I think the commodities area is a is a pretty good place to be in but uh we don't really know so i mean i think everything's so up in the air that i like to be hedged in a couple ways and i'm just a long-term investor so i don't it's not like i'm trading between all these different cycles anyway because i think it'll eventually be back to where i'm doing good um because my time horizon is so long and you know, but I do like to have a few hedges along the way just in case things really tank so that uh, I have some money. And I think it's a good time to have some money sitting on the sidelines and 
I've been building up money in like some block fives and things like that that pay like 8% interest so that you're at least keeping up with inflation. Um, we've had about 5% inflation so far, I think this year. So uh, definitely would want to be some places not necessarily in a checking account or a savings account where you're getting like 0.25%. So I think, uh, you know, having some money on the sidelines for when things really tank eventually, because um, if inflation goes way up and, and we really get a big market crash, you know, I'd want to be buying. So I think I would have some money on the sidelines for sure. But on that note, and definitely being some things, paying some dividends uh, if you can. On that note, I will end this. And uh, thanks for listening.